Well, if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, please turn in them to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. This morning we continue our series where we are going through each of the eight Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning we arrive at the seventh Beatitude. And as has been the case in recent weeks, our sermon text is just one verse. Matthew 5, verse 9, but for the sake of context, uh, I want us to begin reading in verse 1. So these are the words of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And this is our text today, Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for how your word leads us, guides us, and trains us in righteousness. And Father, we ask you now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, re-speak the truth of your holy word to us today. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, illuminate your word to our hearts and teach us. Teach us and Instruct us regarding what it truly means to be peacemakers. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. And everyone said together, Amen. So as we have seen in recent weeks, in these verses, Jesus pronounces blessing on those who evidence the various character qualities that we see here. Our Lord expects that these qualities will define and they will mark each and every one of his disciples. It's been said several times already in the series, but it bears repeating. We don't earn our justification. We don't earn our right standing with God, our salvation by Exemplifying these qualities for believers in the Lord Jesus, our justified status is unshakable. It is totally secure and it can never be changed. And we praise the Lord together for that. That said, the Beatitudes... Beatitudes are a sober reminder to every disciple 
that these qualities ought to mark our lives in increasing measure. And if they don't, something is wrong. Perhaps even badly wrong. So if someone makes the claim, I'm a Christian, I am a disciple of Jesus, and yet they are totally given to impurity of heart, they're ruthlessly unmerciful, and they couldn't care less about righteousness, they're always quarreling with other people, living their lives as the opposite of peacemakers, and, the, and they are not actively seeking to repent of those sins. Someone has that attitude and mindset, well, quite obviously, that calls into question the authenticity and the genuineness of that person's faith. The New Testament is abundantly clear. The evidence of genuine conversion is a changed life. For as Jesus said, you will know them by what? What does he say? By their fruits. That's right. And we bear fruit in part by endeavoring in absolute and full dependence upon the Holy Spirit and resting in our justification. We're going to say that again. We endeavor in absolute dependence upon the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us and in dependence on our right standing with Christ in our justification. We depend on those things and we seek to grow. Here in verse 9, Jesus pronounces blessing upon a specific group of people. He pronounces blessing upon peacemakers. So he says, he says, blessed or happy are the peacemakers. And in so doing, our Lord Jesus, our Savior, the one who gave his very life for us as our Lord and Master, he beckons every follower of his, including you and including me, to become and to grow as a peacemaker. A good working definition of peacemaker, I think, is this. I think we have this for you on the screen. A biblical peacemaker is someone who facilitates authentic relational unity and peace rooted in the truth. I'm going to say that again. A biblical peacemaker is someone who facilitates authentic relational unity and peace rooted in the truth. So a peacemaker is a man, a woman, who promotes, a a boy and girl, we have children here today, a peacemaker is someone who promotes relational peace wherever he or she can. And that peace, which he or she seeks to promote, is authentic and heartfelt. It is not disingenuous and empty. That said, in order for us here today to become effective biblical peacemakers, it is critical that we first understand the Bible's diagnosis of the root cause of a lack of peace in human relationships. And to understand that, we've got to go all the way back. We've got to go all the way back to the beginning. So, 
the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They've always existed eternally in perfect peace, tranquility, and harmony with one another. Our God, as we read every week in the benediction from Hebrews 13.20, our God is a God of peace. Hence, all peace originates with Him. It originates with Him. And it flows from Him. And because of this, in the beginning, when God created man, when He created our first parents, Adam and Eve, God's peace, God's peace overflowed to them. Hence, Adam and Eve were blissfully at peace with God. They were, they were at peace with the created order. And they were at peace with, with one another. No conflict. Imagine that. None whatsoever. No turmoil. No war. We mourn the tragic effects of war in our world, even as we see what's going on in the Ukraine. Imagine a world with no war, no rumors of war. That's what it was like prior to the fall. Yet, as you know, all that changed. All that changed when Adam and Eve tragically disobeyed God in an act of high treason, which is what this was. In an act of high treason, of rebellion, of war against the Creator and the supreme ruler of the universe, the fruit God said explicitly, they may not eat the man and the woman. They ate it. And the consequences were disastrous. They were devastating and they were deadly. And by deadly, I mean that I mean that both literally and figuratively. Man was now in opposition with God. Man was, the biblical word is enmity. Man was now at enmity with God. Death, death entered the picture. Childbirth for the woman would from now on be an expression of pain and not peace. The man's work would from now on be characterized by toil, not peace. Creation itself was subjected to futility, Romans 8, to frustration and to a lack of peace. Furthermore, the man and the woman, husband and wife, once in perfect harmony, they would now experience conflict and strife. Their once happy marriage would now not be happy all the time. To the woman, God said, Genesis 3.16, your desire shall be, I like the way the ESV puts it, shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. <laughs> not, not very uh, happy news. <laughs> there it is. All marital conflict... <laughs> And the history of the world is a consequence of sin. It's a consequence of Adam's sin. It's a consequence of our own. Well, 
as the Genesis account just move, moves on, as it, as it progresses, most of you have read the book, and what we see is that as sin matures in the human race, relational turmoil becomes an absolutely pervasive theme. By the beginning of chapter 4, the first murder has taken place as Cain, in a fit of jealous rage, murders and kills his brother Abel. Far, we're far cry from Eden now. By the end of chapter 4, you have Lamech celebrating his murderous revenge over an enemy. So in the Genesis account, it is abundantly clear where relational conflict and turmoil originates, where it comes from. Indeed, it, it comes from sin. Right? It comes from sin in a, in a general sense. But more specifically, and this is extremely critical for us to grasp, okay? Relation, relational turmoil comes from sin generally, but more specifically, all relational turmoil from world wars to the petty conflict you just had with your spouse yesterday or the day before that. All of it originates in and is caused by disobedience to God. Adam's disobedience and our own. So the lesson begins to emerge very clearly early on in the Genesis narrative. And it continues throughout Scripture. Vertical conflict with God always causes horizontal conflict with our fellow man. Vertical conflict with God always causes horizontal conflict with our fellow man. And this, brothers and sisters, is the sad story of the human race. Relational unrest and a lack of peace, people at war, at enmity with, and hostile to one another. This is the story. What's the root cause? Enmity with with God. Just consider this with me. Um, Why did Joseph's own brothers treat him so poorly and wickedly? Well, because they were not right with God. They were filled. They saw their brother and the way their father treated him with preferential treatment. And the preferential treatment wasn't right, but they saw that. And how did they respond? Well, they were filled with envy and jealousy. And we all know Envy and jealousy um, is sin against who first? It's sin against God. So Joseph's brothers, they're not right with God, and that's the vertical problem. And they said, let's kill him. They were envious. Let's kill him. Let's murder him. <laughs> but on second thought, they said that might actually not go too well for us. That might not benefit us, and we don't really get anything out of that, so let's, let's just sell him. Let's just sell him as a slave. So you see it there, even that one example. Joseph's brothers had a vertical problem that resulted in a horizontal problem. Uh, just consider Pharaoh. Um, why did Pharaoh and Egypt engage in prolonged conflict with Moses and the people of Israel? And not let God's people go in spite of the ten plagues. 
in spite of mighty displays of power. Why didn't Pharaoh let the people go? Well, Pharaoh was an idolatrous pagan king who hated God. He had a vertical problem. And hence, he hated God's people. And conflict ensued. Think of King Saul. Why did King Saul hunt down God's chosen servant, David? God had clearly chosen David to take the throne. And Saul knew it. And instead of cooperating with God's plan, what did he do? He sought to kill God's appointed servant multiple times. You just read, David's on the run. He's on the run from Saul. Why? Um, Well, if you know the narrative, you know that Saul wasn't right with God ever since that episode with Samuel and him offering unauthorized sacrifice before the Lord. Later on in the Old Testament, Sanballat and Tobiah opposed Nehemiah and the people of God as they sought to rebuild rebuild the walls. They returned from exile. Sanballat and Tobiah, these enemies of God's people, they opposed Nehemiah. They threatened, and the people, they threatened to kill him. Why did those men do that? Well, because they had a vertical problem. They weren't right with God. Why did the Pharisees, fast forward, why did the Pharisees oppose the Son of God and arrange for Jesus' execution? They didn't know it, but the Pharisees, they had a vertical problem. They thought they had it right, but they we're not right with God. So they opposed the very Son of God. They had a relational problem with Jesus. <laughs> That's an understatement. Why did Saul, who became Paul, persecute Christians and persecute the church? Well, because prior to God knocking him off his horse, bright light, Saul wasn't right with God. Something needed to change. Examples of this could be multiplied. I I think you, you see my point here. Vertical conflict, conflict with God, leads invariably to horizontal conflict, conflict with other people. The logical outworking of this is, until the greater problem is solved, the lesser problem will always remain. Until our problem of rebellion against God is dealt with, we have no hope for true relational peace with other human beings. Now, I've alluded to this already. Um, It is possible to achieve a kind of mere external peace apart from Christ. We all know that outward peace and civility can be maintained for political or social reasons, even by people who hate each other. (laughs) And you can have a kind of mutually beneficial truce as well, or ceasefire agreement even while underlying hostilities still remain. So you can have a truce without biblical peace. However, we must understand true biblical peace, authentic, the real thing, it's not a truce. And it's not social politeness either. It's it's neither of those things. Uh, True biblical peace is something far greater. Biblical peace is the cessation of all bitterness, resentment, and hostility. It's the cessation of all bitterness, resentment, 
and hostility and the active presence of Christ-like love. (laughs) So true biblical peace is the absence of something and the presence of something. You with me? The absence of hostility, the presence of Christ-like love. And I think you can see how that kind of deep, uh, genuine, heart-level peace in our relationships with others is simply not possible while we remain at enmity with and in rebellion against God. It is not possible. You can have a truce. You can have social politeness and civility. You can't have true, authentic peace if you're still in rebellion against the Lord. As the Apostle Paul says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. And then he says, I think this is on the screen, hated by others and hating one another. That's the default. That's our default pre-conversion mindset. And this is, dear brothers and sisters, why Jesus came into the world. He came first and primarily to solve our greater problem, the vertical one. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. Who is it? You can say it out loud if you know it. The man, Christ Jesus. One mediator. One mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. A mediator, as you know, is someone who brings two parties in conflict together and seeks to reconcile them. And this, wonderfully, God and Christ has done for all of us. Just consider with me a moment these truths which you know well yet thrill our hearts. Apart from Christ, we were alienated from God. Apart from Christ, we are at enmity with God and we are objects of God's wrath for our sins. However, on that cross, on that cross, Our Savior Jesus bore the wrath, the punishment, the condemnation that we so richly deserve in order that you and I might be fully and completely and totally reconciled to God and enjoy peace with God forevermore. As a result of what He's done, the enmity in that relationship The hostility is forever and eternally gone. What good news, amen? It's gone. It is totally and completely done away with. Oh, what a Savior we have, dear brothers and sisters. What a Savior we have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. He would do that for us. Not just what a Savior He is, though. What a peacemaker 
he is. What a peacemaker Jesus is. Ephesians 2, 13 to 16. Paul, the Apostle Paul. But now in Christ Jesus, hear the word of the Lord to you. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Praise him. Praise the Lord. The good news of Ephesians 2 is that our vertical problem with God has been solved. But that's not all. Now that it has been solved, on a horizontal level, we as redeemed people can now enjoy deep, abiding unity and authentic peace in our relationships with one another. That's good news. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has made it possible for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to enjoy authentic peace with other brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus. This is good news for our families. This is good news for local churches everywhere. So how is the question is how how uh, how is this unity achieved? How is it worked out? How is this peace worked out? Well, practically, this unity is achieved as we, as God's people, submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ in how we relate to each other. Unity is achieved. As we as God's people submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and how we relate. So we saw earlier that disobedience, lack of submission to God, produces, the dis- produces disintegration of human relationships. That's the story of the fall. It's the story of the early chapters of Genesis. It's the story of the whole Bible. A lack of submission to God produces disintegration of relationships. Uh, Thankfully, the opposite is true as well. The gospel, the glorious gospel, and Christ's redeeming work has made it possible for us to submit to Christ and to obey Christ and how we relate to one another, which tends to foster wonderful, God-glorifying relational unity, harmony, and peace. When we as as believers, when we yield to the flesh, this is the challenge because we do yield to the flesh at times. When we yield to the flesh, to remain in sin, when we don't submit to the Lordship of Christ, to His rule, to His reign, to His authority here, in how we relate to our spouses, to our children, to our fellow church members, when we don't submit to Him, 
Well, that's where the marriage conflicts. That's, that's, where, that's where that comes from. That's, that's where, why do, why do churches have quarrels? Well, it's owing to the vertical problem. <laughs> We're not submitting to, to Christ and his authority and what he says in our relationships. And it's true, it's true of all relationships. So how do we live as biblical peacemakers? Okay, because blessed are the peacemakers. Well, quite simply, we must, we must endeavor to submit to and obey God's law. I say simple, simple to understand, harder to do. <laughs> we must endeavor to submit to and obey God's law with respect to how we relate to one another. And when we fail, we do well to repent quickly as we see that the problems in our conflicts have to do with our relationship with the Lord. As people, we can sometimes um, be so confused and bewildered when we find ourselves in conflict. Have you ever had that experience? I know I have. Where you're experiencing conflict or tension with someone, maybe in your family or in the church, and you could just feel bewildered, like, okay, why is this happening? Why am I experiencing this this tension. Um, we can be bewildered, be bewildered, excuse me, but brothers and sisters, we really need not be overly <laughs> bewildered. Uh, biblically, most often the root cause of our conflicts is the age-old vertical problem. <laughs> Either I or the other person or both of us are disobeying God's law. Somehow, in some way, and so there is conflict. There are many ways we disobey God's law. Um, one of them is we, we disobey his commands regarding love. God's law spoken through the mouth of our Lord Jesus. And that is what you have in the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. Um, I'm going to digress for just one second. On Mount Sinai, who was the lawgiver? Moses. On the Sermon on the Mount, who's the lawgiver? Christ. So that's why we, whenever we want to know what does God call us to do, we don't immediately go to Moses in the Old Testament. We can get to Moses in the Old Testament and in the Ten Commandments, but we always go through Christ. And on that mount, Jesus was clearly issuing directives and new covenant law, as it, as it were. Uh, more on that in another sermon, um, digression over. God's law spoken through the mouth of our Lord Jesus stipulates, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and a second is like it, you shall what? Say it out loud. Louder. Love your neighbor. As what? Yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, biblical peacemaking 101. (laughs) Do you want to be a peacemaker? Do you want your contribution to your marriage and other relationships to be a godly peacemaking contribution? If so, the way forward is simple to understand and not so easy to apply. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. And really, I could just end the sermon there and we could be done and go home. 
Uh, but we're going to go a little bit, a little bit longer because I want to talk about, okay, how does this work out practically? There is so much here. I mean, there's so much here if we're going to unpack this, this line of loving your neighbor as yourself. But I want to talk about just a little bit how this works practically to help us uh, be true peacemakers to the text today. So, how this works practically. Um, do you want others, we're loving our neighbors ourselves with the aim of peacemaking. Do you want others to forgive you? Right? We know forgiveness produces harmony. Do you want others to forgive you? And I'm preaching to myself as much as to you. Well, forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. You want others to forgive you? Forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. Remember, remembering that love covers. Love covers one or two sins once in a while. True love, biblical love, covers a multitude of sins. So, I encourage all of us, I encourage you, forgive your spouse. Are you struggling with bitterness today? (laughs) Towards your spouse, forgive. Your parents, forgive your mom and dad. Your siblings, children, forgive your siblings. Don't hold on to bitterness. I, I, I beg you. I plead with you as one of your pastors. If you're struggling with bitterness with someone, don't hold on to it. If you hold on to it, bitterness will just eat away at your soul and it will perpetuate conflict and a lack of peace in your relationships, in your life. So if you're struggling with bitterness, I plead with you on the word of God, let it go. In the gospel and in the Lord Jesus, let it go. Because that's what being a biblical peacemaker is, is about. Think about this. Do you want others to give you the benefit of the doubt, make charitable judgments of you, and believe the best of, of your motives? There are all, always those situations where something happens in a relationship and we're tempted to get, believe the worst. Do you want others to believe the best of you? Well, then do it for others. Do the same for your spouse, your children, your fellow church members. When their motive is in doubt, believe the best. And if you have a question about their motive, ask them. Don't sinfully judge them, which is our tendency. It's mine. Don't sinfully judge them regarding their motive and and assume the worst. But instead, love them. Because love, 1 Corinthians 13... Go back to the text, you married couples who had this read at your wedding, go back to your wedding text. Love believes all things. That's charitable judgments. Right there. We're to seek to believe the best. And in my experience of, of counseling, and even in my, own, in my own life too, I've just seen sinful judgments produce so much needless, ridiculous sometimes, conflict, where an assumption is made. You did this because, and we go to motive and make an accusation, and then the conflict is on. That's not peacemaking. If we want peace in our relationships, we need to lean in. To, if there are two plausible explanations for why a person has done something, one negative, one positive, we have a responsibility in love to lean in towards the positive until the evidence suggests and proves otherwise. That's love, and it's being a peacemaker. Um, Another one, do you want others to gossip about you behind your back? Of course not. 
Do you want them to slander you to your friends and your family? No, you don't. I don't either. Well, then don't do it to them. Refuse to engage in that gossipy conversation. Oh, man, that's easier said than done. Sometimes, you know how that is. You're in a conversation and someone just begins to talk about someone else and you want to let, you want to hear it. The flesh wants to hear that. You know what a biblical peacemaker does? They don't do it. I'm not going to engage that gossip. You're talking about, you know, you're talking about your, the person, maybe you're, you're in a family and one sibling I'm talking about like grown children or something. And one sibling's talking to a parent about, the, uh, about another sibling, and there's gossip taking place. That kind of conversation needs to not be in, engaged in. So I want to encourage you, that when those kinds of things come up, refuse it. Few things tear down relational unity like gossip and slander, which becomes, it's like fire. You know this. You've seen it. You've experienced it. And it does untold damage to unity and peace in families, and in the church. And the alternative to that is to gossip and slanders. When you do struggle with someone and are tempted towards anger or bitterness because of something that they did towards you that, that was hurtful, well, let's apply God's word. We love our neighbor as we love ourselves, we, and we do for them what we would want them to do for us. And that is, rather than gossip about them to others, we go to them directly. We go to them directly and share our concern. It's important that we remember that biblical peacemaking requires us at times, at times to, as the Apostle Paul says, Ephesians 4.14, speak the truth in love. Scripture requires that of us. At times, to go to our brother, our sister, and speak the truth in love. This is such a key point to keep in mind as we pursue peacemaking. Because true peacemakers don't settle for counterfeit peace. And by counterfeit peace, I mean uh, a mere outward semblance of peace. But underneath, um, underneath the surface, conflict rages. <laughs> Anger rages. Bitterness rages. And the problem is, The problem with counterfeit peace is that the more you settle for it, the more bankrupt you become. The more you you settle for counterfeit peace, the more bankrupt you become, and the less true friendships you actually have. So imagine a small town. Silly story, I made it up. Imagine a a small town back in the 1700s. And this town has a cash-only economy. Um... And this town is largely isolated. It's in, the middle, it's in the middle of nowhere. And a con artist comes into the town and over a period of many years continually infuses counterfeit cash right into that small town, into the economy, while gradually removing the genuine cash for himself. He does this uh, over decades until finally all the property in the town, everything, everything everyone owns, has been bought with counterfeit cash, and all the cash that people have is counterfeit. So finally, after many years, this crime is discovered, and everyone in the town realizes, (laughs) wakes up and realizes that essentially they are totally bankrupt, and they own nothing. They own nothing because their houses, their belongings, 
everything was purchased with counterfeit cash, so they literally are bankrupt, and they own nothing. As I think about this, I think sometimes in an attempt to keep outward peace, we can be, we can be like this. We can be guilty of dealing in our relationships with counterfeit relational currency. And I'm talking about the counterfeit relational currency of, of saying nothing, uh, saying nothing and pretending that all is well. Or worse, outright, outright lying in order to keep the so-called peace. So due to fear of man um, or just a desire to avoid conflict and, and not rock, rock the boat, sometimes we will say to, to others that we're in conflict well, with, all is well. Or we'll portray that, all is well, when the reality is not all is well. Not all is well. And we can sometimes continue in this way for years, for years, in our marriages, in the church, and in other relationships. The problem is, brothers and sisters, when we deal, when we deal with relationships that way, here's what's happening, and we don't even realize it. We are impoverishing ourselves and those we are in conflict with. We deprive ourselves and others of genuine, life-giving, unified, peace-filled relationships which give God great glory. And we also aren't acting as true biblical peacemakers when we just keep up the peace, the appearance of peace, but there is no true, authentic peace of the heart. We must be clear. We must be really clear. Blessed are the peacemakers does not apply, does not apply to the person who deals exclusively in the currency of counterfeit peace, because that is not biblical peacemaking. That's not biblical peacemaking. That is just bankrupting ourselves and other people relationally. And if you do that, if you do that for so long, and, and, and all our relationships are just about managing other people and keeping up appearances and having an outward peace, it's problematic because eventually you really don't have, you're bankrupt. Uh, relationally. You don't have unity or peace, true peace with anybody. So, brothers and tr- sisters, I trust you see biblical peacemakers aim for true unity, rooted in truth, and hence we are willing to both graciously and courageously speak the truth in love, even at times, at the risk of set- unsettling uh, outward external peace. There, there is real irony here. Sometimes Sometimes biblical peacemakers experience turbulent waters, okay? True peacemakers are heroic people in God's eyes. And that's why Jesus pronounces blessing over them. They're courageous people as well. And they're willing to travel over some relationally turbulent waters. Because <laughs> they're trying to get to that, that destination, that island, as it were, of relational peace. And they're willing to speak truth graciously but clearly in order to get there. And, and I mentioned this. Frankly, many of us at times lack the courage to take the journey. Some of us do. I know I do. And that's where we need the Holy Spirit to convict us and to help us. Yes, it is right to overlook offenses. It is right. That's biblical. To do that where possible, love bears all things. However, when we can't overlook offenses and find ourselves struggling to forgive... 
or are bitter and angry under the surface. Okay, when we find ourselves in that place, you try to overlook, but it's not working, and you're bitter. In keeping with Matthew 5, Matthew 18, it's essential we go. It's essential we go directly to our brother, our sister, and in love try to work that through that conflict rather than to allow it to boil underneath the surface, unresolved, and just to eat, eat away at our souls. It's critically important that we always remember the ultimate ethic of biblical peacemaking is not don't rock the boat. It's not don't rock the boat. Um, biblical peacemaking, the ultimate ethic is, is not keep everyone happy. Instead, it's the aggressive pursuit of truth-based unity of heart for God's glory. Um, one other point here on this. This principle of speaking the truth in love, I do believe it also applies to cultural sins. Uh, the great error of so-called liberal Christianity is that it seeks peace. Here's what liberal Christianity and, and, and liberal churches um, do. They seek peace, but they do so at the expense of, of truth. So professing Christians and leaders will compromise on matters of the authority of Scripture, the exclusive—I can't say it—the exclusivity of Christ, marriage and gender, sexuality, other issues. They will compromise on these issues all because they want peace with the culture, uh, and that is peace through capitulation, uh, which is not biblical. That's that too is a great error, as the reformer Martin Luther once said. Uh, peace if possible, but truth at all cost. So in the days ahead, I pray that God by his Holy Spirit would help us as a local church to not cave into cultural pressure, to shave off the sharp edges of the gospel, which calls sin, sin, but instead to preach the gospel of grace, which brings people into authentic, genuine peace with both God and others who call upon the name of of the Lord. So, let's bring this home. And I do want to ask the band to join me. The ministry of peacemaking is not an easy calling. It is not an easy calling. However, Jesus wants us to know it is a calling that comes with great blessing. Jesus said, "Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God." So here Jesus encourages us. He encourages us when we serve as peacemakers, when we love our neighbor as ourselves, uh, when we reconcile with others, when we help other people to reconcile with each other, we bear resemblance to our Heavenly Father. That's what he's talking about here. We bear resemblance to our Heavenly Father, the ultimate peacemaker who sent his only own dearly beloved son into this world to bring us peace. And what a blessing that is. It's a blessing to resemble our heavenly father as his sons and daughters and represent him in the relationships God has given. So I want to end by exhorting you, even as I exhort myself, may we aim, brothers and sisters, to be biblical peacemakers. May we live under the Lordship of Christ in our relationships. May we truly aim to love our neighbor as ourselves. And may we not settle for counterfeit peace, but instead be willing to speak 
the truth in love. May God, by his Holy Spirit, help us to that end. Our gracious God and Father, you are the ultimate peacemaker. Thank you for sending your dearly beloved Son into the world so that we could have peace with you and peace with one another. Lord, I now pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would seal this word home to our hearts. Help us to grow in becoming biblical peacemakers. We trust you want to help us to that end. Thank you for bringing us here today to hear your word and to help us in our relationships. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.